Hello and welcome back to Silver Age, Silver Screen, a podcast where we watch, discuss, and review sci-fi, cult, superhero, and other stereotypically geeky films. I'm your co-host, Casey Jarms. And I'm your other co-host, Riley Thorpe. And you know what, Riley? Do you remember what things were like two years ago back in 2019? Everything was so weird. There were killer robots. There were giant pyramids in L.A. It was always raining for some reason. Honestly, I don't remember anything pre-pandemic, so it very well could have been that. I just, I just don't know. At this point, I'm just numb to tragedy. I mean... Yeah, you're right. Sure, that horrible, horrible dystopian picture of 2019 in Blade Runner was bad, but at least it wasn't our real-life 2020. Oh, yeah. Or maybe it was. I don't know. There could have been a giant coronavirus outbreak as soon as the film Blade Runner ends. That's why the replicants are revolting. And my play, there's so much prejudice because the replicants are immune to coronavirus. Or, better yet, the replicants brought coronavirus to Earth. Hmm? Yeah, didn't think about that, did you? Yeah, you know, it's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Apparently not anyone. No, I guess In not. America, because, you know, they, we're just making it so these recordings are, well, not incomprehensible. People will remember this, but less relevant in a few years' time. Yeah, forget everything we said about COVID. I already have. I'll just go with it. We're talking about Blade Runner today, the classic 1982 science fiction film directed by Ridley Scott, starring Harrison Ford, Rutger Haar, and Sean Young. The film is an adaptation of the 1968 science fiction novel by Philip K. Dick, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Although it gets its title from a completely unrelated novel called Blade Runner, which I haven't read, and I don't know if it has any similarities to this film. This film isn't an adaptation to that. It's weird. They went with Blade Runner because it's a cooler name than Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Blade Runner is in general a weird name, but it's a lot cooler. <laughs> it's for sure as hell cooler than Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah, it's a very long title. To clarify, this movie came out in 1982. However, there are seven different cuts throughout its existence, five of which are of significance. There was the work print cut, which was filmed and edited. That was like the first draft of the movie that Ridley Scott presented to the studio and the studios showed to test audiences. And because test audiences hated it, the studio took hold, kind of screwed Ridley Scott over and cut the movie as their own and released it theatrically where it bombed critically and commercially. There was an international theatrical release which was significantly more violent and bloody. Ten years after its release, they released the director's cut of the film, which, funny enough, Ridley Scott did not make. However, he approved it. Then why is it called director's cut? I don't know. The latest, most definitive, what people say is the best, and Ridley Scott's official cut of this movie came out in 2007, Blade Runner The Final Cut. And that's what we watch today. Yeah, if you're going to watch it, watch the final cut. Or if you can't do that, the director's cut. Or really, just watch any version of it and plug your ears during the pointless exposition voiceovers. And especially at the end of the movie when the theatrical cut ruins everything. Yeah. But yeah, we're doing the final cut today. 
Yes. Isn't the theatrical cut, isn't that, isn't that the one where Stanley Kubrick lent Ridley Scott in the studio, like B-roll from The Shining, just like overhead shots of trees and shit? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I'm pretty All sure. All I know is the change they make. Oh, yeah. I mean, I understand why the studio did that. You don't like to hear about it. And as a, an aspiring filmmaker myself, you don't like to hear about that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, there is a lot of money going into these movies. And because of that, the studios want a return. And they want to create the best possible product for audiences to get the highest possible return. The problem is that that, on occasion, ends up screwing over the director and the director's vision. Because what it goes from is... The director is trying to create the soul of the movie, but then the studio comes in and says, okay, our priority is to make money. What can we add and take out in this movie to make the most amount of money? And unfortunately, it's just a fact of filmmaking. It, it happens. There's a lot of people getting screwed over, but at the end of the day, I don't blame them, but it, yeah, led, I mean, to, it led to a much worse executive movie. Executive meddling, it's not always awful. Like in another Ridley Scott movie we've talked about, Alien, the ending that the studio shot down was the one where Ellen Ripley is murdered at the end. Like, it's not always bad. It just isn't this one. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Blade Runner, this phenomenal sci-fi noir film that helped found the cyberpunk genre. It begins with a text crawl explaining that in this far-off distant future of 2019, when we have begun colonizing planets, ah, old-timey views of what the future would like are always so disappointing when you compare them to reality. Yep. In this future world. Humans have robots. They aren't robots. I'll get to that later. Robots called replicants, which they use for menial work on off-world colonies. And out of fear of these replicants overthrowing humanity, each replicant is built so that they die after four years. But sometimes replicants escape and make it to Earth where it is the job of the Blade Runners, these elite detectives to hunt down and not kill, retire the replicants. The film picks up in Los Angeles in November 2019, where a man is brought in for questioning. Uh, he asks him a few questions, starts interrogating him, asks him these seemingly menial questions, and right when the interviewer asks him about his mother, the guy pulls out a gun and shoots him and kills him. From there, it cuts to Harrison Ford's character, Richard Deckard, a retired Blade Runner who just goes to order some Chinese food, doing his thing, when out of nowhere he gets arrested and taken back to the police station where he is told he needs to come back to hunt down these new dangerous replicants that made it to Earth and uphold the law. Which, funny thing, the guy who tells him, he's like, I need my Blade Runner back. You know where I recognize that actor? Of all the things. I was like, that guy looks so familiar. Do you know what I recognized him from? You ever watch the movie Racing Stripes? Okay, no, that's so much weirder. I mean, Emmett Walsh, he's been in a lot of stuff, but no, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, it's a movie about a zebra that becomes a racehorse. Wow, that sounds incredibly stupid. Weren't horses, like, selectively breeded for generations and generations to be good at running? They explain it in the movie, okay? What else? It has um, Bruce Greenwood, Snoop Dogg, David Spade, Steve Harvey. Wow, that sounds awful. Yeah, I loved it as a kid. Dustin Hoffman, Whoopi Goldberg, Michael Clark Duncan. This is really off topic, but 
That's, it is. That's it why is. I recognize I mean, this guy. We're saying records for how fast we got off topic. Deckard, he begins investigating, trying to track down these four missing replicants. He finds out that the previous Blade Runner assigned to the case, the guy who got shot in the opening of the film, he was interrogating all of the employees at the Tyrell Corporation, the company that creates replicants, and that the man who killed him is one of the missing replicants. Deckard goes to the Tyrell Corporation and meets with their CEO, Eldon Tyrell, who asks him about these tests that they perform to find out if replicants are, well, replicants, like to distinguish them from humans. He has Deckard perform this test. It's called a Void Comp test. It like scans your eyes as you're asked weird questions. It's never really explained the specifics of how it works, but it's future tech. Yeah, future tech. It like scans the eyes and sees if the pupils dilate when you're asked to feel empathy. Whatever. The point is, Tyrell has Deckard perform this test on his assistant, Rachel, who has this ridiculous. Josuke Higashikata pompadour, because that's the fashion in 2019. Remember when we all dress like that? Yeah, remember when Atari was like the big thing in 2019? That's the funny thing about this movie is that every single company that is featured and that they have like giant billboards mm -hmm. all throughout the city. But what's funny is that all of the companies, except for Coca-Cola, that are featured in the movie are either dead or dying. So what you're saying is I should sell off my Coca-Cola stock because it has the Blade Runner curse. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that yet. I wouldn't necessarily take it out. But um, just wait. Just wait till Blade Runner 2049. Then we'll see. As soon as the test is done, Deckard sends Rachel out of the room and he reveals that he has figured out that Rachel is a replicant. And he and Tyrell have some conversation about what the replicants are, where Tyrell explains that he gave Rachel human memories and didn't let her know she was a replicant to, like, see how it would mess with her mental development. Gotta love big corporate guys messing with human lives to, for an experiment. And... I would like to say this is a phenomenally shot movie and there are many, many aspects to that. The set design, the yes. cinematography. But I'd just like to note this tiny moment. It shows up in this scene and I think they replicate it with Rachel and I think Roy in a few other scenes. Walt Deckard is doing the test. You can see there's some light being reflected into Rachel's eyes that just makes her look fake and plastic and artificial. I just, I have to note because that's such a good little bit of directing. Yeah, you see, that was actually created through a technique called the Schuften process, where light is reflected into an actor's eyes through a two-way mirror placed in front of the camera lens at a 45-degree angle. Yes, I looked that up because I saw it and I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, they like actually created that specifically for the purpose of distinguishing between humans and replicants during certain scenes. And it's such a nice little thing. Decker goes out and he begins trying to track down the replicants. And throughout this film, can we talk about the set design and the visuals? Yeah, of course. This film, it suffers from that thing that all revolutionary works suffer from, where they've been imitated mm -hmm. so many times that they lose a bit of their edge. But this film, from what I've read, invented a lot of the visuals of cyberpunk. And it yeah. still holds up pretty well. You get this crowded, putrid, filthy city. It's always dark. It's always raining. There are people everywhere. There are massive ads. It's very clearly the future 
future, but it feels much worse than the present. It feels dystopian. And also there's massive pyramids where the rich people live. And when we see like that scene in Tyrell's corporation, it's the only scene where like there's any yellow light and it just sets apart this class difference. It's such a well shot movie. The visual design of this movie has gone on to inspire countless cyberpunk sci-fi movies like The Matrix, Ghost in the Shell, Dark City, all that stuff. And what's interesting to me to look at it is it's not necessarily like future technology. Like it's more like analog technology, how they think it would have grown and evolved for the future. So it's a very interesting style that they went with for like the sci-fi elements. It's all analog tech, but it's futuristic analog tech. And yeah, the city just feels filthy and overbearing and it feels lived in. You know, and I believe Ridley Scott actually took inspiration from uh, Star Wars. Star Wars has a very, very unique take on sci-fi. The production design is fantastic. And I will say it is super, super interesting. Honest, this is my first time watching the movie. Unfortunately, I know there's going to be a lot of movies that we review here that people are going to be like, what the hell? Yeah, this is my first time seeing the movie. And it's interesting watching this and the amazing production design. And then like a month earlier, we reviewed Super Mario Bros. that had the exact same production designer. And I mean, Super Mario Bros., I don't think the production design in that movie is awful. It's just that it isn't really servicing the story because the story wasn't as good as it is in Blade Runner. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is this deep, intelligent, thematic, philosophical work. Whereas that movie was... Uh, yeah. Trust the fungus. Dennis Hopper, like, he does some mud and he wants to de-evolve people into the monkeys and... Uh, Luigi's got a girlfriend. We, oh, God. Oh, God. I, we it's, didn't, okay. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. We've gotten past it. We'll move on. You never have to watch that movie again, Casey. Deckard continues his investigation. He goes to Leon, the replicant who killed a guy at the start of the movie. He goes to where he's been staying and he finds a snake scale and a stack of photographs, which are important for later. But then it cuts to an introduction of our film's main antagonist, Roy Batty, played by Rucker Howard, the leader of the replicants. He and Leon go to visit a scientist who makes artificial eyes, played by James Hong, because he's an old Asian guy. And James Hong is the only person who is allowed to play old Asian guys in Hollywood. Even in Disney Channel. Yeah, you know, and what's interesting is that he wasn't even that old when he did this movie. He was like in his 50s. I think and like all throughout the 80s well this movie and another movie that you and I have seen and love Big Trouble in Little China he just plays this like really old guy this really old East Asian man it's just funny because he's from Minnesota uh, I, I just think it's so funny he always plays that character it's just like I mean he's from the Midwest so is he like doing a voice in all of his films or does he genuinely sound like that if he's American actually I do not know. They go visit this guy. He's a geneticist who creates eyeballs. The villain, Roy, interrogates him to tell him the name uh, Spencer. Yeah, yeah. Sebastian. Yeah. Sebastian. I've seen this movie three times. Riley's seen it once. I know it better than Riley. Yeah, yeah. 
Roy's whole goal throughout the film is he wants to rewrite his genetic code so he doesn't have to die young. And the only one who can do that is Tyrell, the head of the company that makes the replicants. So he's got to get to Tyrell and he interrogates Chu, James Hong's character, and finds out that he can get access to Tyrell by going through J.F. Sebastian, who works for Tyrell. Mm-hmm. It then cuts to Decker going back to his apartment and he finds Rachel waiting for him. Like hiding in the corner of the elevator and he almost shoots her. Like, Rachel, you can just stand there and like say hi when he gets in, whatever. Rachel confronts him about the whole you're a robot thing and she's like, no, I, no, I'm not. I have memories of my childhood, which Deckard reads off to her because... He knows those memories because Tyrell told them because they're fake memories because Rachel is a replicant. Yep, and like a dick, he just spoils it for her. Come on, yeah. Deckard. Why you gotta tell this nice young girl that she's a robot? Ruin her whole day. Although, I suppose this is as good as time as any to say that. Something that kind of irks me about this and the novel it's based on The replicants aren't robots and they aren't androids. Right. They're genetically engineered humans. Mm -hmm. They're made out of flesh and bone and stuff. And I know, I know, the whole point is that the dehumanization of the replicants is horrible and that they're actually arguably more human than Deckard. I know, I know. But they aren't androids. Yeah, the word replicant is never in the book. In the Hmm. book, they call them androids, or Andes for short, which they felt was a little too silly for this movie, so they went with replicants instead. There's this, there's Dragon Ball. People don't know what the word android means, and it annoys me. Yeah, get your sci-fi straight, people. Come on, Ridley Scott, man, I know you're a legend, but come on, man. A young woman, played by Daryl Hannah, her name is Pris, is homeless, walking through the streets, when she is confronted by a shy, awkward guy, and she tries running away. And in doing so, she, like, runs into a car, breaks through the window, which, interestingly, that was not planned. She actually did that. She actually broke through the glass with her hand there by accident. That must have hurt. He's nice to her, so she goes home with him. He works for Tyrell. He's a toy maker. He makes, like, uh, replicant toys, basically, and just lives yeah. in this run-down apartment in, like, this destroyed, dilapidated, filthy complex. And, yeah, my entire thought process during the scene, I'm like, why are you going with this guy? What What are you doing? It makes sense later. But I'm like, what are you doing? Run! Stranger danger! The fact that... Chris is playing J.F. Sebastian. If you know what you're looking for, you can see it. Like, before they even meet, she, like, goes to the garbage in front of his building and, like, hides under it to, like, make him think that she's actually homeless. Also, something I only realized when watching this movie this time. So, like, J.F. Sebastian, his creepy apartment filled with puppets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just realized something. He's a geneticist. He makes artificial humans. Yep. Those aren't puppets. Those are creepy replicants that he made. Yeah, and there are a couple shots throughout the movie where it shows the puppets and they're played by they're humans. They're played by human actors. It's those that's I don't know if that's more or less creepy, but it's definitely still creepy. Point is, Pris needs to run, but she's not going to for reasons we'll get into. Yeah, because she's playing J.S. Sebastian. Mm-hmm. Deckard looks through the photographs that he got in the apartment and starts looking through them until he finds a woman 
in a mirror. Yeah, yeah, he does the classic CSI zoom enhance, which actually, considering how old this movie is, it may have been the first to do that. Yeah, it's like uh, Star Trek with uh, flip phones. Yeah. He finds the photo of this woman, knows what she looks like. He finds out that the piece of skin that they got on the apartment is a genetically engineered snake, visits the guy who made it, says he sold it to a guy who owns like a strip club, dance club, confronts that guy. Then he goes back to talk to one of the dancers. And I will say, I did really like this movie overall. It's just this scene, for some reason, Deckard puts on this weird, cheesy, high-pitched, nasally voice. Like, what's the point, dude? Like, what, what's the point? Wait, you, what, are you trying to disguise yourself? Yeah, he, like, tries to track down one of Roy Batty's main minions, Zora, who's working as a stripper, and he goes in and he's like, Ow, ow, I, I'm a safety inspector. Want to talk? See if you're being exploited by your boss. It's really weird to hear... Harrison Ford pretend to be a nerd because that's the opposite of everything he is in all of his movies. Right. And also it doesn't... Okay, I gotta stop doing that voice. Please. And also it doesn't, like, work. Zora sees through him immediately and, like, sucker punches him after he's been doing this for a few minutes. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of that. Getting back to Big Trouble in Little China, it reminded me of that scene where Kurt Russell goes into the brothel and basically does the exact same voice. But it's like, for that movie, it was played for comedy. It's like, this guy's an idiot. You know, what's the point of this? It's just funny. This one is a very serious movie, and he just starts doing it, and it fails horrendously immediately. Zora escapes, but he tracks her down and kills her. Then, while walking home, Leon grabs him, starts fighting him, until Rachel shows up and shoots Leon. That's two of the replicants dead. I mean, hell, the job's getting done pretty well thus far. Yeah, you're pretty good at your job, Deckard. Although, actually, looking over the film as a whole, you're not very good at your job, Deckard. Nope. Like, he kills these two easily, but, like, the confrontation of the other two is so sloppy. You suck, Deckard. Deckard takes Rachel home with him. Oh, by the way, we forgot to mention, after he killed Zora, his boss, like, stopped by and said, That's good, only three more left to go. You mean two more? Nope, Rachel's on your kill list, buddy. But Rachel saves him, and he takes her back to his apartment, and he tells her that he's not gonna kill her because he owes her, but someone probably is. Yeah. Also, they have some romance scenes where he's... A little forceful, and it's kind of rapey. Yeah, I was watching that like, huh, wow, this would have been done a lot differently today. And I, I, he's not rapey within the context of the film, that he's like trying to teach her romance, and that involves being forceful. But, mm, wow, that scene kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Also, because it's relevant to the ending, while Deckard is home... He falls asleep, and he has a dream about a unicorn. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Pris and Sebastian are together. They're getting closer. Sebastian explains that he's kind of like the replicant. He has Methuselah syndrome, which makes him age really fast, so he's kind of like them. Mm -hmm. Also, Pris brings home Roy Batty. Uh-oh. And A, they are a bit intimidating like there's a scene where Pris reaches into boiling water to pull out an egg and isn't affected at all but B Roy forces Sebastian to bring them in to meet with Tyrell yep it's all going according to plan all according to plan Tyrell praises Roy for being so brilliant imagining to get so far but explains that uh sorry 
There is physically no way for me to make it so that you don't die in a few days of old age. Right. After learning that his fate is sealed, he kisses Tyrell and then murders him by- Square on the lips. He called him like daddy earlier because he created Roy. Yeah. Yeah. Gives him square on the lips. And then he brutally murders him by plugging out his eyes with his thumbs. Ugh. The replicants, by the way, have super strength. Oh yeah, we forgot to mention. The replicants, super fucking strong. Yeah, he kills Tyrell and then he kills Sebastian. Deckard goes to Sebastian's apartment where he is attacked by Pris, kills her, and then he's confronted by Roy who dislocates his fingers and then just kind of lets him go as Roy mourns the death of Pris. Yeah, two things on the death of Pris. Pris is like waiting for Deckard when he gets to Sebastian's apartment. She like paints herself up in makeup to look like a doll and she like hides among the puppets and ambushes him. Also, it's a bit cheesy, I will admit, Pris's fight with Deckard. She like cartwheels and kicks him, then like strangles him between her thighs. Then she gets off and she goes for another cartwheel kick and he like shoots her in the head and she just falls to the ground and starts conversing and then he shoots her a bunch more. Mm -hmm. Another kind of cheesy thing that I thought of was... When Roy goes to kiss Pris, she has her tongue sticking out. So Roy tongues a dead body. Oh, God. What? Well, I mean, it was still warm. Actually, no, that doesn't make it better. Yeah, no. But yeah, Roy fights Deckard to avenge his fallen friends. And it's a curb stomp. Roy isn't even trying, <laughs> no. and he's still kicking Deckard's ass. Like, you get the feeling that he's just fucking with Deckard. He could kill him easily, and he's just acting like a clown. Right. He's singing nursery rhymes and chasing him. He's howling. Although, partway through the film, Roy starts to die, and he loses all feeling in his hand, so he takes a nail and stabs it through to, like, regain the feeling, which is cool. Mm-hmm. I, I really like how the heroes and villains, protagonists and antagonists, are portrayed in this movie, particularly with Deckard and Roy. Because Deckard is kind of just a guy who's okay at his job. I mean, he has his own emotional journey, and we'll go into that. But in terms of this fight, I'm like, when I think of Harrison Ford, personally, I'm so used to seeing, like, Indiana Jones, where he just kicks everyone's ass. But no, he gets his ass handed to him while he runs away. And Roy, I think Roy is probably my favorite character in this entire movie. He's very interesting. This is one of those films where the enjoyment for me comes less about watching it and more about discussing and thinking about it after the fact. I love how the portrayal of the replicants versus Deckard are. Yeah. The replicants, they're more human than he is, I feel. Yeah. They're more emotional. They care about each other. They're arguably more moral. Like, they kill people, but they're trying to survive, whereas... Deckard is just an assassin for all intents and purposes, mm -hmm. going after people regardless of whether or not they're evil. There's this brilliant subtext that robots are more human than the people hunting them, which adds to the tragicness of this film. Yeah. And this is best hammered in by how Deckard and Roy's fight ends. Deckard, like, he jumps and he slips and he's gonna fall to his death. When Roy saves him and pulls him back onto the roof and says, Now you know what it's like to be a slave, to constantly live in fear. Roy spares Deckard. And then he gives the best monologue in any film. 
I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beans glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All these moments will be lost to time, like tears in rain. Time to die. And he falls over and he dies. Honestly, this doesn't happen a lot. I was kind of speechless at that scene when he saves him and gives that monologue. I'm like, wow, shit. Like we talked about before, it really puts into perspective like the context of what the replicants are going through because of the people that created them. And just like you said, they're more human than the people hunting them. Um, I will say it is a little cheesy when out of nowhere he has a dove in his hands. Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. And then releases it as the sky clears. After that, Deckard is met by Griff, who is a fellow Blade Runner who has been kind of his partner throughout the, the movie. Gaff tells Deckard that, Congrats, you've done a man's job. You're free now. You can go back into retirement. And Deckard runs back to grab Rachel to save her from the other Blade Runners as Gaff tells him, it's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? Which is part of the tragedy of this film's ending. Even if Deckard can protect Rachel, she's a replicant. She only has a few more years of life anyway. Mm -hmm. And in Blade Runner 2049, we find out her fate. We'll watch that movie sometime. This is a really good movie. I think Blade Runner 2049 might be my favorite movie ever. I agree. I do think it's the superior of the two films. So Deckard gets home and Rachel is waiting for them. And as they're running away, he finds a little origami unicorn. Now Gaff, his partner, has this weird tick where throughout the film he just makes little origami animals. And he has left for Deckard an origami unicorn. And let's talk about the implications of that. Mm -hmm. On the surface level, that basically shows that Gaff, I called him Griff earlier. Yeah, yeah, he's not the guy from Red vs. Blue. On the surface level, the fact that he left something there for Deckard and Rachel basically says, I'm not going to kill you, but you are never going to be not hunted. However, leads to the question, is Deckard a replicant? Yeah, because he obviously never told Gaff about his unicorn dreams, which means Gaff knows Deckard's memories, and there was another scene in the movie where someone's memories are read off to them, and that means that that person is a robot. Mm -hmm. So this heavily implies that Deckard is a replicant. Yep. Except, this is one of the most famous film twists ever, and I'm kind of going to criticize it a bit. Go ahead. So that wasn't foreshadowed at all, and... How that works within the film's logic with Deckard, who is a Blade Runner, also being a replicant. And there's a lot of questions it raises, and it wasn't foreshadowed. Yeah. Also, it's not true, judging by the sequel. But yeah, it raises this ambiguity about whether or not Deckard is human, which is good in a film where the whole point is, what's the difference between human and machine? Mm -hmm. Before we get into like the specifics of the film, some of the behind-the-scenes of it since the movie's release there's been a lot of people confirming and denying whether or not Deckard is a replicant. Ridley Scott the director of this movie has stated in interviews that he is in fact a replicant. However Harrison Ford said that he is not. When he was playing Deckard he always envisioned him as a human just like the journey that he goes on makes a lot more sense to him and in many ways makes sense to you and I 
as that he is a human. In the book, he is a human. However, his entire journey, he becomes less emotional, more dehumanized. And then, like you mentioned earlier, is like that question that everybody talks about, like, okay, well, what does it mean to be human? You know, where does the line from naturally born to genetically engineered start and end, you know? Ultimately, it doesn't really matter because the whole point is that it's ambiguous. Right. Deckard's own humanity is called into question and he gets away. He runs off with the pretty girl he saved, except there's this underlying sense of dread that it's it's not going to last. Except... In the theatrical cut, people complained the ending was too dark. So there's last minute a voiceover where Harrison Ford's like, well, it's a good thing that Rachel doesn't have that thing where she dies after four years so we can have a happy ending. Woohoo! Uh, there are a couple other details in the movie that kind of put into question looking back. Replicants, as we mentioned earlier, have these like yellow glossy eyes. And in the scene right before he hooks up with Rachel, Deckard is standing behind her, and for a split second, you can see his eyes turn a bit yellow. Now, that could just be a light, or that could mean he is a replicant. That also added to the fact that Deckard has almost no backstory. Not, no backstory at all, which implies the idea that, like the replicants, he didn't really have one. All his memories are just implanted. Uh, at the end, when Roy saves Deckard, people question why he did that. On one hand, you could say, oh, he knew he was dying, and he wanted to show Deckard, like, hey, I am a person. Don't let my death go in vain. Or it could be the fact that Roy, throughout the entire movie, only killed humans. And then when it came time to letting this human die, he saved him. Well, why did he save him? Could it be that he knows he's a replicant? But how would he know that? Deckard in the movie never took that uh, test, but in the book he did, but we're not talking about the book. There's a lot of details to support the fact that he is a replicant. However, logistically, there's a bunch of flaws with that. Like, if he is a replicant, why is he allowed to live on Earth? You know, maybe he's an older model that hasn't been outlawed. Well, how does that make sense? Because if he's older, then how long does he have to live? If he was allowed to be a Blade Runner, because we find him at the beginning of the movie, he's retired. He's a retired Blade Runner. But why would they let him retire in the traditional sense when they could just retire him in the Blade Runner sense? You know, kill him. Point is, mystery for the ages. One little bit of subtext that I thought was very interesting to this movie is if you look at it, all the replicants have like some memory of animals. You know, and this is in a dystopian world where there's nothing but city, which is why the cheesy theatrical ending doesn't make sense where they're flying over the forest, because the, the, the purpose of the city is to show that, like, just this city, this shit, filthy city is overtaking everything, and there's nothing but this. But because of that, most animals are extinct. And in order to make up for that, a lot of people have been genetically designing these animals. Like there's an owl in the scene where Deckard meets Rachel and Tyrell, and the owl has glowing yellow eyes. There's a snake who the, the snake scale is from that is obviously fake. Most of the animals in this world are fake. The replicants, they dream of real animals. Like Rachel at one point talks about a spider. They're in this fake world, but... They dream of real animals. They dream of real sheep. 
you know? Which again goes to what makes them human or androids, because the replicants dream of something real, whereas the humans just kind of accept this world that they've been in. Deckard, on the other hand, he also dreams of animals. However, he doesn't dream of a real animal, he dreams of a unicorn, which is very clearly not real. This either implies the idea that it's an implanted memory, but why would they put a unicorn in there? Because that's not a real animal. Or in uh, Christianity, and I'm going to get kind of deep here. Well, not deep. This is as deep as I'll go. That's what she said. When Western Christianity, the imagery of a unicorn was used to symbolize Jesus Christ. That could imply that Deckard, as a person, wants something more and wants something better outside of this world, beyond the fake world, beyond the real world, this other world that isn't possible for him, you know, which again fits into the hopelessness of his story and his situation. Or it could just be a coincidence. Gaff knows that about him. He just feels like he wants a better world, so he made a unicorn. I don't know. Enough about the unicorn. I feel we've talked enough about it. Yeah, I, honestly, at the end of the day, I think the question of whether or not Deckard is a replicant really depends on the cut of the film you consider to be canon, I guess. So we would, what's your favorite? What's your take on it? But I think at the end of the day, personally, there's a lot of evidence to support both ways in this movie, but I think it doesn't matter. That's the point. It's about this age-old philosophy 101 question of what does it mean to be human? How is it that Deckard, what makes him human and makes Roy and Rachel not human? At the end of the day, it's a weird twist that came out of nowhere, but I think the purpose of it is to have people think about it and to be ambiguous, kind of on purpose, which I have mixed feelings about just doing it, having a twist for the sake of having a twist, but... So, saying that aside, let's talk more about the actual quality of the film. Mm -hmm. We've discussed praise for the acting, the set design, the writing. The music is something we miss. I love the synth score in this, yeah. as it's just doing the panning shots of the city. Although, I'm going to note two kind of big flaws of this film. Mm -hmm. Number one, it's a very slow film. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, yeah, but no. it is a very slow film. When it comes to slow movies, there's boring, and then there's a slow burn. And this occasionally straddles the line. Yes, I do agree with that. And the bigger one, we complain about romance a lot, and... Yeah, this isn't that great of a romance. Nope. But think about it this way. I completely agree with you. It was very forced, very awkward, very uncomfortable, especially in that one scene. But think about it this way. What if Tyrell planned to have Deckard and Rachel meet so that they would fall in love? And in doing so, that would be an experiment of seeing whether or not replicants can procreate. Cool, that doesn't mean it's not bad. Yeah, oh, I, I agree. I agree. I'm just saying. Think about it from that angle. Is It's like he planned that to have an endless stream of replicants for the infinite future, which in a way is basically the main conflict of Blade Runner 2049. That's a good movie. I want to watch it again. Yeah, watching the first one, because I watched 2049 in theaters when it came out, and then I rewatched it again about a year later, and when I watched this one, I was like, I really want to go back and rewatch that. Denis Villeneuve is one of my favorite filmmakers working today, and he did a phenomenal job with that. I really completely understand that it's your favorite movie. It, it's fantastic. So, Riley, on a scale of, like, 1 to 10, 
with one being really, really, really fucking bad and ten being better than anything we've ever seen on this show before. How would you rate this film? I think you said it very well earlier when you were like, this movie almost works better as like not necessarily watching it, but analyzing it, thinking about it after the fact, you know, theorizing. I love this movie, don't get me wrong, but I think I personally had a better time thinking about it afterwards, theorizing about it, looking up information and stuff like that. Like the research that I did, the whole is Deckard a replicant or not, like honestly, um, every movie we review, I typically, I take a, an entire sheet of loose leaf, front and back sided, and write out the plot as far as it'll go, and then kind of squeeze in my thoughts on it in, in, at the bottom of the second half. But honestly, I only wrote the plot points on the first half of the loose leaf, which was interesting to me because it was really slow paced, but at the end of the day, I thought watching the movie went by really quick for me personally those two hours flew by. That said, watching it got really slow at times. And, and honestly, not a whole lot happens in comparison to some other movies we've watched. Like I said, it's only enough to write down on the first half, uh, the first side of the paper. The second half, I wrote down like theories and in-depth thoughts into the themes and the s subtlety and whether or not Deckard is a replicant. And that was a majority of what I wrote in the second half. So in terms of how that applies to my overall thoughts, I think the movie is one of the most important sci-fi movies ever made. It changed the game. It invented a lot of things for cyberpunk, for tech punk. It has phenomenal directing, acting, production design. That said, some of the writing can get a little iffy. Some of the pacing can be a little off. There's some plot points that I'm not a big fan of. I think this is a flawed masterpiece. That said, I think I have a better time thinking about this movie after the fact as opposed to rewatching it. And for that reason, I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. Yeah, I give it a 9. I really like this movie. It's probably the deepest movie we've ever seen on this mm -hmm. show. It's not perfect, but it's a very intelligent. It makes you think, you know? Yeah, yeah. I feel the exact same way, the way, like, thinking about it afterwards is better. I feel the exact same way about uh, Donnie Darko. I gotta watch that movie. Yeah, it, it, it's good. It's weird. It's one of the things that when people say, no, I fucking hated that movie, and I'm like, yeah. And then someone says, I, I love that movie, and I'm like, yeah. It's, uh, it's an interesting movie. We, we could review that on the show, I think. Next week, we're going to keep up the theme of these dark cyberpunk dystopian films by doing the original Spider-Man mm -hmm. movie. My favorite Spider-Man movie. I thought Into the Spider-Verse was your favorite. You see, I, this is a joke now. Before The Amazing Spider-Man, I said it was my favorite Spider-Man movie, and then I rewatched it, and it isn't anymore. So every... Never... I got it. I got it. I got mind. it. Yeah, yeah. Riley... If people want to find out more about the show, where could they find it? You can all find the show on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Silver Age Silver Screen. We post a lot of details about the show, post some other stuff, some fun videos, entertainment news, stuff like that. So be sure to check us out on all social media platforms at Silver Age Silver Screen. What about you, Riley? You can all find me on YouTube at Riley Thorpe, where you can check out all of my short films. You can also find me on TikTok and Instagram at Riley James Thorpe, where you can check out all of my content there. You can find all my junk at CaseyJarms.wordpress.com. Check out 
all my writings, added a bunch of new short stories there. Also, new game called Dream Jump. It's a 3D platformer. Play it. You can also all find me on Twitter at JarmsCasey, J-A-R-M-E-S-C-A-S-E-Y. We'll be back next week, assuming we don't end up secretly being robots and then get killed by Blade Runners. Ugh. Where, as we've said, we're going to be watching the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. As always, I'm Casey Jarms. And I'm Riley Thorpe. And hey, it's just a movie. Don't lose your head about it. Especially not to a ladder.